Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen, you guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. So I don't know how this happened originally, but Courtney, our connections pastor, somehow connected her AirPods to my computer. And now every time she tries to use them in the office, I get a notification that says, Courtney Straga's AirPods are connected to your computer. So like a good friend, I immediately turn the volume all the way up go to Spotify and blast the song from my classic rap playlist into her ears because it's fun for me. For her, I don't know. I just usually hear the muffled sound through the wall of, ah, it's so loud. Why? But this week when it happened, I clicked on the song Cream by Wu-Tang Clan. And after I heard Courtney scream and I chuckled a little bit, I realized that's kind of ironic In a week where I've been thinking about how our finances are the only area in which God invites us to test him, I randomly stumbled upon CREAM, which for those of you who did not come of age in the 90s, is an acronym that means cash rules everything around me. And so I listened to it. Cash rules everything around me, CREAM, get the money, dollar dollar bill, y'all. And it hit me. What was meant to be a clever hook in a hip hop song is probably a tragically accurate picture of life for many of us and for a lot of the people we crash into out there in our world. Cash tends to rule everything around us. It rules our vocational pursuits. It rules our decisions about what we're going to buy or not buy. It rules our parenting because like heaven knows if our kids don't get a scholarship then they're going to be in student loan debt and so my five-year-old needs to be in extracurriculars nine days a week or else oh no! Cash tends to rule and even ruin our relationships with the people who are closest to us. It rules our hopes. It rules our anxieties. It rules our thoughts about the future. It's not hard to get to a place where cash rules our nightmares and our dreams. We're not even trying to, but so many people in our world are living out Method Man's life motto, cream, and it's killing us. We know it. There was a recent study done of Americans that asked them to do a little bit of word association. And when the word money got thrown out there, the number one response, like by far, was worry. Money and worry tend to go hand in hand. And the painful truth is most of our worries about money have to do with stuff we want but can't get, not stuff we need but can't have. And yet still we worry. And as soon as we worry, we tend to clench our fists a little bit tighter around what we've got because we believe holding on to it is the solution to our issues. However, that leaves us in quite a predicament because study after study after study done by secular researchers around the globe confirms what the Bible tells us repeatedly. Living generously actually liberates us from fear in the area of finances. It allows us to experience joy and happiness on a completely different level while also allowing us to participate in creating a better story for the world by blessing the people we crash into. And all that sounds really great, right? It's just in practice, it's really (laughs) 
difficult. It does not come naturally to us at all. In fact, it comes even less naturally than most of us assume. There was a recent study done across the entire socioeconomic spectrum called the Donor Mindset Study. And what it found is that most Americans dramatically overestimate their own generosity. In fact, they do that by about 331%, which in case you're not a math wizard, means Americans think we're giving away way more than we're actually giving away. Only two thirds of households give anything at all, and on average those givers give 3.2% of their income away while estimating that they're giving away 8.4%. Nearly 40% of Americans think that they give at least 10% of their income away, but less than 4% actually give at that level. And the study concluded that Americans self-identify as the most generous culture on earth, but the numbers tell a different story. And at the same time, less than 20% of Americans would self-identify as wealthy. And I think probably most of us in this room would happily join the 80 plus percent who do not think we're wealthy. And that's fair. Except everyone in this room or almost everyone drove here today in a car that we're gonna drive home and park in its own little house next to our house. I'm just saying there's about 7.5 billion people on the planet who don't even have a car, much less a car house. A lot of them don't even have people houses. And what's more, anyone in the room who makes the median income in the state of Iowa of $61,000 a year is not just in the top quarter of wage earners in the world, they're in the top quarter of the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. You guys, we have this problem. We don't think we're rich, but we are, and we do think we're generous, but we're not. And I don't say that to shame all of you, to like beat you over the head with me, you lousy bunch of sinners. And I also don't say it to pretend like inflation's not real and it's just really easy to skate by in America. That's not true. I'm throwing it out there as a fellow struggler along the journey because I think we've been lied to by our culture and by the enemy of our souls in a way that leaves us imprisoned by fear over our finances, that leaves us in this miserable monetary state where we're clinging to what we've got, believing it will actually deliver the peace and the hope that we need and never, ever finding that stuff delivered. You know, last week, uh, and I'd encourage you, go back and listen to that message if you didn't, but I talked about God's simple, yet seemingly illogical and irrational solution to our tension in the area of finances, and it's called tithing. Tithe means tenth or 10%, and God's answer to our financial tension is tithing. And again, I said this last week, I'll say it again because it bears repeating, tithing has nothing to do with money and everything to do with trust, because all of us know I think every single one of us could admit it if we were in the mood to be radically honest this morning. Money tends to be the thing that battles with God for first place in our hearts. And it has a subtle way of sneaking onto the throne, but it's a cruel master once it gets up there. And so in order to remind ourselves who we actually can trust, in order to make sure God's in his rightful place, He asks us to give back a portion of what we've been given. Tithing is giving 10% back to God because it belongs to him. Ultimately, everything in creation belongs to the creator. 
which means every last thing that's been placed in our hands is a gift from a good and generous giver. But the catch is when we let the gifts take the giver's rightful spot in the hierarchy of our hearts, something happens. We start to make what I call the consumption assumption, which is everything I got and everything I get is meant to be spent on me. Like everything I got and everything I get is meant to be spent on me. That's the way of our world, right? But what if that assumption is wrong? At least partially. What if everything God places in your hands really is for you, but not in the way that you assumed? Like, what if God is less concerned with the number in your bank account that determines your wealth and more concerned with the orientation of your heart that determines your health? What if it's for you, but it's just not all meant to be spent on you? Listen, every single thing God places in your hands really is for you. It's just for something bigger than your wealth. There's more at play than your 401k. God is actually inviting you to be a part of what he's doing in the world to make all things new and set all things right. See, he makes it clear in in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and a whole bunch of other places throughout the Bible, but specifically in the Old Testament law, as he's laying out his vision of how his people can step into the lives and the meaning and the beauty they were created for and truly flourish, as he lays out that vision, he gives us a picture of how generosity can grow two critically important things in our lives, faith and flourishing. Really simply, tithing our first 10% back to God grows faith because it reminds us that he will never, ever fail to provide. I can tell you guys this. I've had conversations with all sorts of people, really from all across the globe, here in the States, but I also have friends in, in Mexico and in Haiti who live amongst and are part of the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere, friends in India and Pakistan and Korea and Kenya and more, and I have never... Never, not one time in hundreds of conversations, I have never talked with someone who's committed to giving tithes and offerings and living open-handed because they have a God big enough that they know he'll never leave them empty-handed. I've never talked to one of them who hasn't told me that living that way set them free from worry about finances because they now know that God will never fail to provide. And I desperately... Like desperately, I want that sort of freedom for all of us because we have that sort of faith. And so giving generously, tithing actually grows faith, but it also grows flourishing. And not because if we give 10% to God, he's gonna multiply that and give us back even more money than we gave. There are some churches and pastors that will tell you that. I don't know why. I don't know why. That's not what God says ever. He does say that our generosity will result in his blessings in ways we couldn't even picture and couldn't even imagine. It's just that they're not always material. See, everything God commands us to do in the Bible is about relationship. When Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden, when they turned their back on him and tried to chart their own path, they broke the universe, specifically by cutting off the connection between us and God and between us and one another. And ever since then, God has, in, or God has been in the business of setting all things right and making all things new, of reconnecting that severed connection and recreating a condition called shalom. 
This Hebrew word shalom ends up getting translated peace. Most of the time it shows up in the Old Testament of our Bibles. And it is peace, but it's kind of a bigger, broader concept than just peace. Shalom is a world where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. It's nothing missing, nothing broken. This is the way the world was, was meant to be. And the way God says the world will be again but if you look around right now, there's a lot that's missing and a lot that's broken. And here's what I want you to know. Every single thing God places in your hands is part of what he's doing to set that right. It's part of his grand plan to heal the universe and bring flourishing back to a floundering world. And for starters, God's providing for you so that you and your family can have everything that you need to thrive. But he's not just providing for you, he's also providing you with purpose by gifting you the opportunity to give to the people around you who are in need so that they can thrive as well. There's meaning to be found in living on mission with God. So what you get and what you got is God's investment in human flourishing. It's for you to have what you need, but it's also for you to learn who you can trust and for you to be a part of recreating shalom. You have a meaningful role to play in what God's doing to heal the universe. And when you don't give though, when you lean into the consumption uh, assumption that what I got and what I get is for me and you only consume, God says you actually unravel the way the universe is knit together. You participate in breaking shalom and in creating more things that are missing and more things that are broken, which ultimately disintegrates the world and defrauds your investor. I know this is super heavy. Like, I, it's, it's a lot, but I want to remind us that it's hopeful. We were made for generosity. We're blessed to be a blessing, and there's no getting around it. Tithing is the ticket. I know the objections though. Like, like Mike, tithes plus offerings. Like giving, giving that much of my income away, I, I can't even wrap my mind around what that would look like, around the changes that I have to make in my value structure and in my lifestyle. And I don't even know that it's necessary for me to really do that. Because I like, I, I know, and you said like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and maybe some other places, but isn't that just like an Old Testament thing? Sacrifices were an Old Testament thing. I don't see you up on the stage telling me to slaughter a goat. I've been... I don't even know how I would slaughter a goat, but I'm not doing it. I don't feel like it. And plus, doesn't it say in the Bible that I'm just supposed to give whatever my heart wants to give so that I can feel happy about it? I want to take a look at two passages today that I think we get wrong in the Western world, particularly. Ironically enough, this is not as big of an issue in the poorer parts of the globe, but it is in the affluent European and American parts. And the first one happens in Luke 11. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to Luke 11. We're going to start in verse 41. If you need a Bible, please grab one from the next steps table before you leave today. And if you don't have one handy, you can follow along with the words on the screen. But I think we've missed the point on, on a couple passages. And in Luke 
11, verse 41. This is what's going down. Jesus has been invited to have dinner at the house of like a religious leader in Jerusalem, who's a member of this really intense group called the Pharisees. And as all of them are going through their ritualistic religious preparations for dinner, they're checking all the right boxes and jumping through all the right hoops, Jesus doesn't do some of that stuff. And they get real judgy about it like religious Karens tend to do. I don't know if you've ever met a religious Karen. I'm a pastor, I meet them a lot, and they're just the best, funnest people, all right? And so Jesus has a lot of thoughts for these guys about how on the outside, they appear to be really great, but their hearts are messed up on the inside. He's like, yeah, 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 sure, you're checking the right boxes. But God isn't sitting on the throne of your hearts. You are, or specifically your reputation is, and that's the only reason you're doing that. The outside's clean, but your inside is super broken. And this is what he says, starting in verse 41. But now as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. All right, there are people who read this and say it's Jesus' way of like minimizing tithing because he kind of makes fun of the Pharisees for counting out down to the grain each little thing from their garden and bringing a tenth of it to God. And those people aren't entirely wrong. Jesus is giving them a hard time for that, but not because they're bringing the tithe to God. It's because they've missed the whole point of generosity in the first place, faith and flourishing. He's like, listen, you guys, you're bringing God these offerings and you're thinking you're good to go because you lived right up to the minimum God set for you, but you are literally walking past hurting people and hungry people, and starving people, and broken people on your trip to the temple to deliver your tithe. You're missing it. Like God is in the business of making all things new and setting all things right. Things are missing, things are broken, and you're missing the point. So figure out a way in your hearts to provide for the poor. Figure out a way in your hearts to chase justice. You are supposed to be a part of what God is doing to heal the brokenness of this shattered world. But notice his last line. He says, you should have done the latter without leaving the former undone. He's saying, yeah, offerings, charitable giving, taking care of people, but also tithes. Tithing isn't the floor, it's the, or tithing isn't the ceiling, it's the floor. It's the minimum necessary that you need to give in order to be who God's calling you to be. Here's why it's the, man, I got floor and ceiling mixed up in my head and I'm not gonna get it right now. Anyways, here's why tithing is the floor and not the ceiling. 10% belongs to God anyway. And as we read last week in Malachi 3, you're stealing from him if you don't give it back to him. So it's not the minimum God's ever going to ask. It's the minimum necessary for your trust not to migrate from your creator to your cash. It's what you need to make sure your heart is right. And some people miss this. They think it's Jesus' way of saying, hey, charitable giving is what matters, so don't really worry about tithing anymore. But you guys... If you read the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, I think it's impossible 
to come to any other conclusion than this. He never lowers the bar. He never tells us that we should live beneath the fullness of what God says will bring us meaning and hope and peace and life. He's never like, you know, happiness is the thing that really matters, so don't really worry about adultery anymore. You know, comfort's really the thing that, that matters, so don't really worry about, about lying anymore. Jesus continually raises the bar. He says, yeah, don't murder, but also don't even like hate anybody because your heart gets all jacked up when you do. Yeah, don't cheat on your spouse, but don't even look lustfully at someone else because your heart gets all jacked up when you do. Jesus isn't dimming the picture God paints of the lives he says we were created to live. He's sharpening it. He's adding a whole lot of color to it, and he's continually inviting us to more, to beauty, to life. And here he's saying, yeah, tithing isn't a religious box that you can check so you're good to go forever. If you're doing that, your heart is all jacked up. It's the floor, not the ceiling, because you were made to be a part of what God's doing to bless every single life you crash into. And so here, it's silly to think he's doing anything other than what he does everywhere else, always. All right, second verse, I think, we take out of context in the West, probably even more frequently. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul's talking to the church at Corinth about generosity, and he writes this. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, I have repeatedly heard people read this verse and say it means we're only supposed to give ever whatever our hearts feel cheerful about giving because God wants us to be happy about it. I have two quick thoughts about that. Bear with me. Number one, of course God loves it when we cheerfully, excitedly do what he's called us to do. But at no point in the Bible, trust me on this one, I read it right? At no point does God say, you know what? You should only do the stuff I asked you to do. Like, you should only follow the rules that I say will bring you hope and peace and joy and meaning and purpose and life. You should probably only do that stuff if your heart feels good about it, all right? Because I love a cheerful Christian. Like, imagine if we took that idea and we applied it to anything else. For instance, God loves a cheerful husband, of course he does. But if your wife is being real annoying lately, they'll do that sometimes. You don't got to love her the way God says to love her. Just do what, do what you feel in your heart. Treat her how your heart feels like treating her. God only wants you to do that if you're cheerful about it. Or like, God loves a cheerful truth teller. So if there's some hard conversation you got to have, something you need to admit to, but you feel like it, it wouldn't make your heart very happy, lie your face off. Who cares? God wants you to be cheerful about telling the truth or like God loves a cheerful parent right let me pull a hypothetical situation out of thin air say for instance you have nine-year-old twins and one of them is being a real turd lately just sell them on Facebook you got a spare and God only wants you to be a good parent if you're cheerful about it like we don't do this with anything else clearly God wants us to experience the peace that's found in joyfully stepping into the lives he called us to. But listen, God does not want us to experience the chains that come from living beneath our intention because our hearts were temporarily convinced that his ways don't really lead to life. Second thought, Paul's not even talking about tithing here. 
He's talking about the specific offering that he was collecting and asking these people to give above and beyond to advance that mission in the world. And he's like, hey, when it comes to the above and beyond stuff, here's what I want you to do. Come to God with open hands, ask him what he wants you to give, and then give whatever that looks like because he might be inviting you to be a part of this thing. He might be inviting you to make a difference. And right after that, in verses 8 through 11, Paul talks to them about the whole purpose of generosity in the first place. He writes, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We were made to find life and purpose by taking what God has placed in our hands and spending it for the sake of creating a better future for the world. And we can do that when our cash doesn't rule everything around us because our hope is not in our bank accounts or our retirement accounts. Our hope is in our Savior. It hit me this week as I was thinking about it. Every other treasure on planet Earth will cost you some of your life to purchase it. But Jesus is the one treasure who gave his life to purchase you. I think as humans, that leaves us in this spot where we are like weirdly indebted to a savior who paid a debt that we could never pay, but at the same time, completely set free because we know if he loved us enough to give his life, then he loves us enough to show up and provide every single time. He's a generous giver. And so we can be liberated from the consumption assumption that turns our eyes and our hearts inward to this different way of living where we realize everything that's been placed in our hands is for us. It's for us to thrive. It's for us to learn to trust the one who is trustworthy. And it's for us to be a part of healing a shattered universe. And we can all live that way, no matter what we do or don't have, because generosity is a lifestyle. It's a lens through which we view the world that has nothing to do with how much or how little money we have. And if you're thinking, wow, I've never really thought of it that way before, you're not alone. This is a concept that took humanity a long time to figure out. Generosity is one of those interesting words that has evolved significantly over time. It originally, like way back in Jesus' day, came from the Latin word generosus, which meant of noble birth. Because people in the ancient world had a concept that those born into nobility had a responsibility to the poor people around them to, to give and to provide for them because poor people relied on that. But then, and this is just world history, then this Jesus movement we call the church spread out all across planet Earth and a bunch of people began to notice that there were nobles who didn't give anything to help the poor. But there were poor and marginalized Christians who were giving freely. And so the word generous changed. And it began to refer to those who acted with nobility rather than those who were born into it. See, generosity became and and remains in our world today not a position, but a disposition that has nothing to do with the socioeconomic status of the giver. 
And God's inviting all of us into that disposition because it looks a whole lot like Jesus in the world. I just think there's like a type of poverty that kills generosity, but it's not economic. We're impoverished by the lies we believe about how money can do for us and be for us what only God can do and be. We're impoverished when our cash takes our creator spot on the throne of our hearts. And tragically, like an empty poverty of the soul is all we'll ever find when we're rich toward ourselves, but poor toward God and the people around us. And look, I know this is insanity. Like I'm standing up here asking most of us to completely reimagine the way we exist in the universe and and giving like 10% back to God because it belongs to him plus giving other stuff is just like really like out there as as an idea. It's wildly countercultural and I get it that a lot of us might be super uncomfortable right now. But bear with me for a minute. When I was a senior in college, I got really sick. I couldn't keep any food down. I was cramped, just laying in a fetal position and could barely move. And so eventually I went to the doctor and they gave me some pills, but I just puked them all up. And I thought I was going to die on a frat house couch, which would have made for a terrible obituary. So then Jenny drove down from college and made me go back to the doctor the next day, even though I fought her on it. And when I walked in, he poked me right here. And I said, ah! and he left. He said, <laughs> your appendix is about to burst. I should have tested for that yesterday. And I didn't think it was nearly as funny as he did because it's not like some complex medical procedure that we didn't need to order like MRI or something like that. This is not complicated, stupid doctor. I did learn something though. If you go to the doctor and the doctor pokes you and it hurts, that means only one of two things. Either the doctor poked too hard or it hurts because something is wrong. Like something's drastically wrong in our culture. Where so many of the people we crash into are clinging so tightly to what they've got, hoping it will be enough, but deep down sensing it's never ever enough. And we were made to live free. Like I, I, I'm not talking about money because I love making people uncomfortable. I'm talking about it because Jesus talked about it a lot. And Jesus talked about money a lot because he knew it was God's number one competitor for our hearts. And that when and if it takes over, it crushes us and it sucks life from us rather than adding life to us. And so here's my challenge. For every single one of you in this room, it's illogical and irrational by the world's standards, but it's the best investment you can make in God's economy. And if you're here last week, you heard it, I'm going to repeat it this week. In Malachi 3.10, God invites you to test him in the area of your finances. This is the only place in all of scripture where God invites you to test him. You're actually not supposed to put God to the test anywhere else, but in Malachi 3.10, he says, test me on this. It says, you're robbing from me by not bringing your tithe to the storehouse. So bring the whole tithe, not part of the tithe. Bring the whole tithe to the storehouse and test me in this. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and bless you beyond what you could have imagined. Test me in this. And so here's what I want to 
challenge us to do. And it's irrational and illogical. It's out of the box and unorthodox. But I want to give you the chance today to test the creator of the universe in the area where he says, test me and see if I won't bless you. I want to give you the chance to do that completely risk-free. We're calling it the 90-day challenge. And it's a challenge to give 10% of what comes in for the next 90 days and see what God does. And if he fails the test, if God does nothing, if you get to the end of 90 days and you're like, ah, nothing happened, or oh, my fear about finances is the same as it was three months ago, or it's even worse than it was three months ago, we will give you every penny back, no questions asked. Because listen, this is not about me. It's not even about revision. And if in the back of your mind, you're like, I bet it is about revision, give it to a different church. Seriously, for real, I don't care. I don't know if I can get your money back from them. I'll take their pastor out for lunch and see. I'll give it my best shot. But I I dare everybody to do it. There's a card in your bulletin that says, I'm in for the 90-day challenge. I, I dare everybody in the room to take God up on this invitation to test them by filling that out. Put your name and your email on it and drop it in that black box before you leave today. Here's why. It's not so that I can collect your names and hunt you down if I don't think you're doing it right. I do not hunt. I don't want to touch a dead thing. I think that's gross. So you're safe. It's just for this purpose and this purpose alone. You're going to get four emails from me over the next 90 days. One that says, welcome to the 90-day challenge. I'm glad you're in. Then one email at 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days that says, do you have any cool stories of how God provided unexpectedly or any cool stories about how God used you to bless somebody else? That's it. And even if you're already a tither, and I know a lot of you out there are, put your name and email on there because I want your eyes open to this. I think some of us have been doing it for a long time and we stop looking for the miraculous even though it's all around us. But I really believe God is gonna move and do some cool things in this next season at Revision and I want all of our eyes peeled for how he's moving and how he's providing and how he's blessing the world through us. I'd love to collect those stories and I promise I'm not gonna twist your arm and make you stand up here with a microphone and share it if you have a cool story. But I think maybe, just maybe, if you start to do this, God will use your story to change somebody else's life. And so I, I just, I challenge all of us to try because I think if we keep walking this pathway, living in, in this, this cultural rut of cream, cash rules, everything around me, we will miss out on the meaning and the life and the purpose and the freedom God has for us. But if we begin to live counterculturally, what we'll find is that God really is trustworthy and we really are flourishing because he cares and we really do have the opportunity to be a part of his work to make sure The world is as it was meant to be, with nothing missing and nothing broken. We have a chance to write a better story for the world. Will you just pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for providing. Thank you for being the God who never fails to show up for us in every way we need. Not always the ways that we want, but in every way we need. Lord, money's tough. Money's tough in a bad economy. Money's tough just in, in life. I think probably every single one of us has felt fear and anxiety about our finances at some point in our lives. All of us know what it's like to, to worry about whether we have enough. But Lord, would you set us free from that? 
Would you set us free from the crushing fear and anxiety that imprisons so many of the people around us? Would you loose the chains of living beneath our intention because we've doubted that you are good? And would you help us to be a people, to be a community that's trusting that you'll always provide, that's that's setting the giver and not the gifts on the throne of our hearts, and that's making the difference in this world you created us to make, Lord. Give us the faith that's necessary to take the leap of faith, to trust you, and to be a part of what you're doing to help heal up this shattered world. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.